Hello, everyone, and welcome to the March 15th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney of the Floyd Skirin Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The workers' compensation exclusive remedy provision ended a family's lawsuit for employee suicide. Here's what happened in the Court of Appeal unpublished case of Kaufman versus the California Department of Transportation. John Kaufman, a longtime employee of the California Department of Transportation, died by suicide in 2015. He began working for Caltrans doing landscape maintenance work in the early 2000s. Since at least 1998, Caltrans had a zero-tolerance policy for workplace violence, including threats, harassment, verbal abuse, bullying, and intimidation. Mr. Coffin began reporting incidents of verbal abuse, intimidation, and threats of physical harm starting in 2002. He documented these instances nearly every year until his last one in 2015. The October 2, 2015 incident caused him to be extremely stressed out. The following day, he went to the hospital. His blood pressure was elevated, and he was prescribed medication to help him cope, and he was placed on leave due to emotional distress. He is scheduled to return to work on January 4, 2016. However, he committed suicide on December 30. His wife and son sued Caltrans and Kaufman supervisor Michael Nelson for wrongful death. They alleged that Kaufman was bullied, ridiculed, and harassed at work by a number of co-workers and that Caltrans and Nelson failed to prevent those acts, causing his death. Caltrans moved for summary judgment on the basis of their affirmative defense that the Kaufman claim was barred by workers' compensation exclusivity. The trial court granted that motion, and the Court of Appeal affirmed the dismissal in the unpublished case. The issue is whether the conduct of Nelson and Caltrans fell outside the compensation bargain, such that workers' compensation exclusivity does not bar their case. The Kaufmans advanced two arguments for why their claims were not barred. First, they claimed that the conduct of Kaufman's co-workers amounted to harassment, which they assert falls outside the compensation bargain. They further argue that Caltrans and Nelson ratified that conduct by failing to prevent it such that they may be held liable for it. Secondly, they contend that Caltrans' failure to enforce Caltrans' workplace violence prevention policy violated a fundamental policy of the state of California. Analyzing the incidents individually, the Court of Appeal said that the majority of the complaint of conduct by Kaufman's co-workers was within the compensation bargain. The incident in which a co-employee battered Mr. Kaufman was an obvious exception, but that incident was investigated. The employee was found to have violated Caltrans' workplace violence policy, and he was fired. Accordingly, Caltrans cannot be said to have ratified that conduct and thus cannot be held liable for it. And now our crime report. The Court of Appeal affirmed a prison nurse's conviction for workers' compensation fraud. Here are the details of this case. 
2019, Diop, while working as a licensed vocational nurse at the California Institute for Men in Chino, provided insulin to an inmate named George Philpott. After Philpott injected himself with insulin, he returned the needle through an opening in a window. Diop then placed the used needle into a container used for disposing of needles. Philpott observed Diop put his hand into the container and get poked with a needle. So Philpott called for a correctional officer to avoid getting in trouble for this event. Upon seeing Diop pick prick himself with the needle, Philop exclaimed that he had hepatitis C to warn Diop of the risk. Diop was therefore treated for the needle stick and completed an intake form at the U.S. Health Works network stating that after an inmate injection, he got poked by his needle on his right index finger while taking the needle back from him two hours earlier. But seven months later, Mr. Diop was evaluated and treated by mental health professionals. And at this point, the history morphed into an attack by the prisoner rather than an accidental needle stick. Then later, during a permanent and stationary evaluation, the story morphed even more to a claim that he was attacked by this inmate with a syringe, and for the first time he claimed the inmate tried to stab him in the neck. The change from an accidental to intentional mechanism of injury affected the claim's monetary value because at that time, and beginning in 2013, a claimant could not receive permanent disability for a stress-related claim unless it was the result of a violent act, and stress was originally claimed as part of the injury. A jury therefore convicted Mr. Diop of five counts of insurance fraud and one count of attempted perjury in connection with his workers' compensation claim and the Court of Appeal affirmed in the unpublished case of People v. Diop. Diop contended on appeal that the evidence failed to support his convictions, the trial court made many evidentiary errors, the court erred in failing to unseal juror identification information, and other problems with the evidence. The Court of Appeal reviewed and then rejected each one of these arguments. It then concluded that the evidence demonstrates that the defendant's account of how he was injured by an inmate's dirty needle changed from accidental to intentional. From this evidence, it was reasonable for the jury to conclude that the defendant knowingly made a false material statement for the purpose of obtaining greater workers' compensation benefits. A Hawthorne man was sentenced to 212 years in federal prison for intentionally driving his ex-wife and two disabled sons off a wharf at the port of Los Angeles into the ocean, drowning the boys who were trapped in the car in order to collect an accidental death insurance policies he had taken out on their lives. This was 45-year-old Ali F. Elmzayan, who was sentenced to the maximum sentence allowed by law by a federal judge who noted that Elmazayan's scheme was evil and diabolical, diabolical, as well as the vicious and callous nature of his crimes. 
The federal judge also said that he is the ultimate phony and skillful liar and is nothing more than a greedy, brutal killer. After a nine-day trial in 2019, a federal jury found Elmzayan guilty of four counts of mail fraud, four counts of wire fraud, and one count of aggravated identity theft, and five counts of money laundering. Elmzayan obtained more than $3 million of life and accidental death insurance policies on himself and his family bought from eight different insurance companies. After purchasing the policies, Elmzayan repeatedly called the insurance companies to verify that the policies were active and that they would pay benefits if his ex-wife died in an accident. He also called at least two of the insurance companies to confirm that they would not investigate claims made two years after the policies were purchased. These telephone calls were recorded and were played for the jury. In 2015, 12 days after the two-year contestability period on the last of his insurance policies expired, Elm Zayn drove a car with his ex-wife and two youngest children off a wharf at the port of Los Angeles, and then he swam out of the open driver's side window of the car. His ex-wife, who did not know how to swim, escaped the vehicle and survived when a nearby fisherman threw her a flotation device. Two of the couple's three sons, who were 8 and 13, and who were both severely autistic, were strapped into the car and they drowned. Elmzayan then collected more than $260,000 in insurance proceeds from Mutual of Omaha Life Insurance, and American General Life Insurance on the accidental death insurance policies he had taken out on the children's lives. He used part of the insurance proceeds to purchase real estate in Egypt, as well as a boat. Following the crash, Elmzayan repeatedly lied to law enforcement officers and insurance companies. He also lied in subsequent civil litigation he filed concerning the crash, about the extent of the insurance he had purchased on his family, and specifically about whether he had insured his disabled children's lives. He also attempted to persuade witnesses to lie to law enforcement and say he had given the insurance proceeds to charity. He now also faces murder charges in a Los Angeles County Superior Court. 41-year-old Daniel Clampett, who lives in Denaire, California, was arraigned on four felony counts, including insurance fraud, grand theft, and perjury, for allegedly claiming to be injured, too injured to work and simultaneously collecting nearly $95,000 in workers' compensation benefits while also working for another employer. Clampett injured his knee while on duty as a firefighter for the city of Hollister. Clampett said he could not perform his firefighter duties as a result of his injury and received wage loss benefits. But ultimately, surveillance video was obtained in 2017 showing Clampett working at another company while he was still collecting workers' comp benefits from the city of Hollister. Clampett continued to collect wage loss benefits for nine months while receiving a paycheck from a new employer. He did not report this employment and income to the city, nor to the insurance company handling his claim.
During a deposition, Clampett claimed he had worked as an independent contractor for the second employer before his injury and denied applying for employment after the date of his injury. But records from the second employer showed that he started working for them only four months after his industrial injury. The San Benito County District Attorney's Office is prosecuting this case. The Contra Costa County District Attorney's Office filed a felony complaint against Segundo Colazos, the owner of a landscaping company based out of Concord. The charges relate to the 2018 death of 68-year-old Manuel Peralta, who lived in Antioch, California, who died while operating a rented tree stump grinder in San Ramon. According to the OSHA report, Calazos and Peralta were working together on the removal of its tree stump. Peralta had a rope tied around him that was tied to a Dosco stump grinder operated by the owner of the company. Peralta's rope became entangled in the cutting wheel, resulting in his being pulled into the grinder's wheel, killing him. Colazos, the company's owner, who had been operating the machine, was fined $55,000 for six workplace violations. At the time of the incident, Colazos had a suspended contractor's license with the Contractor State License Board. The first felony against him alleges that he permitted the decedent to use a stump grinder in a manner contrary to the manufacturer's recommendations and to work in the danger zone of the cutting wheel. The second felony alleges that Colazos failed to properly train the decedent on the proper and safe use of the machine. And in regulatory news, the Labor Commissioner's Office has cited Green Messenger Incorporated and Amazon.com Services $6.4 million dollars for a wage theft violation affecting 718 workers. The Santa Ana-based contractor delivered packages for Amazon.com services in Los Angeles, Orange, and San Bernardino counties. An investigation began in June 2019 after a report of labor law violations indicating green messenger workers were experiencing wage theft. Green Messengers provided delivery services for Amazon.com. The investigation found that drivers were scheduled to work 10-hour workdays and were required to finish an Amazon delivery route in those 10 hours using Green Messenger or Amazon vehicles. But drivers often had to work through their meal and rest breaks and were not paid properly for the extra time when they had to work 11 or more hours to complete the route. This resulted in frequent minimum wage, overtime, meal break, rest period, and split shift labor code violations. The citations totaled nearly $6.5 million, with more than $5 million owed to the 718 workers. Both Green Messengers and Amazon.com services are responsible for the amounts due to the workers, according to California's Client Employer Liability Law, in effect since 2015. The citations issued to Green Messengers, Inc. include more than $1 million in civil penalties payable to the state of California. But both companies have appealed the citations.
HHS health record information blocking rules will apply this coming April 5. Last November, the Department of Health and Human Services extended compliance dates for a complex federal regulation that is aimed at ending information blocking practices. These impede the secure exchange and use of electronic health information by patients, doctors, and healthcare organizations. The applicability date was extended from November 2, 2020 to April 5, 2021, a date which is soon approaching. On and after that date, all actors, which includes health information networks and exchanges, EHR vendors, and healthcare providers will be subject to the information blocking rules. The compliance deadline delay comes in response to the American Medical Association's advocacy efforts, which claimed that the COVID-19 pandemic monopolized its members' time and attention and its strained resources drastically limit its members' ability to prepare for the November deadline. In general, information blocking is a practice that is likely to interfere with access, exchange, or use of electronic health information. Some general examples of information blocking including hospital, include hospital policies or procedures that require personnel to obtain an individual's written consent before sharing the individual's health records with unaffiliated providers for treatment purposes. Also, contractual arrangements that prevent sharing or limit how EHR is shared with patients, their health care providers, or other third parties, or when patients or healthcare providers become locked in to a particular technology or healthcare network because their electronic health information is not portable. The American Psychological Association published examples that apply to psychologists, such as EHR systems that put or allow an automatic hold on mental health progress records while psychologists determine what EHI is appropriate to include in the system, or EHR systems that allow psychologists to simply classify that an electronic health information is sensitive without further justification to limit access within the system. Enforcement of this new rule is by the Office of the Inspector General of HHS. It would have to show that the provider had knowledge and intent to interfere with access. However, it would not have to show that the provider understood that they were violating the information blocking rules. Therefore, ignorance of the rules would not be an excuse. Nor would the Office of the Inspector General have to show that the information blocking caused actual damage. The Inspector General has, however, indicated that it does not plan to take enforcement action regarding innocent mistakes. A new California Workers' Compensation Institute study finds that non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, those are called NSAIDs, now account for more than a third of all drugs dispensed to injured workers in California. This is triple the proportion noted for opioids. The study also reveals that although most NSAIDs are used, that are used are inexpensive, 
and utilization has been flat since the state's evidence-based prescription drug formulary took effect in 2018. NSAID's share of the total drug spend has soared from 14.2 to 23.5%. That was largely driven by increased payments for two low-volume, high-priced drugs that are exempt from prospective utilization review and that lack price controls. Opioids accounted for 11.6% of the prescriptions filled in the first half of 2020. This is down from 31% in 2011, a relative decline overall of 62.6% during the study period. NSAIDs surpassed opioids as the number one drug group in 2015, and in both 2019 and the first half of 2020, they accounted for more than a third of all prescriptions dispensed to injured workers. Ranking behind opioids in terms of utilization are anticonvulsants, gerontologicals, and antidepressants, which round out the top five drug groups. Musculoskeletal Drugs such as muscle relaxants, which were the third most heavily used workers' comp drug group until the formulary took effect, saw their share of the prescription, prescriptions fall sharply beginning in 2018. Under the formulary, they are subject to prospective UR, with the exception of special fill or perioperative uses, where the quantity of the drug that can be dispensed is limited. While opioids still rank second in workers' comp prescription volume, the study found their share of the prescription payments fell from 30.7 in 2011 to only 7% in the first half of 2020. Opioids now rank fourth in terms of total drug spend behind NSAIDs, which are 23.5%, dermatological drugs at 14.1%, and anticonvulsants, which are 13.1%. And in medical news, a combination of two Eli Lilly antibody drugs cut the risk of COVID-19-related hospitalization and deaths by 87%. The new data is consistent with dosing already authorized by the Food and Drug Administration orders. New data from the randomized double-blind placebo-controlled Blaze 1 Phase 3 study demonstrated that the two drugs together significantly reduced COVID-19-related hospitalizations and deaths in high-risk patients recently diagnosed with COVID-19. These results provide additional efficacy and safety data that support the use of the dose recently granted both emergency use authorization by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and a positive scientific opinion by the European Medicines Agency's Committee for Medicinal Products for Human Use. This new Phase 3 cohort of Blaze 1 included 769 high-risk patients, aged 12 and older, with mild to moderate COVID-19. The consistent results observed in multiple cohorts of this trial over several months, even as new strains of COVID-19 have emerged, indicate these drugs maintains its effects against a range of variants, particularly those 
circulating in the U.S. Eli Lilly continues to engage with global regulators to make the drugs available around the world. And in other news, according to a survey of employers released by Blank Rome LLP, a major national employment law firm, more than a third of employers have fielded complaints from workers related to COVID-19. And claims involving the Americans with Disabilities Act have jumped since last summer. The report is based on a February survey of 130 executives, human resource leaders, and in-house and general counsel. 34% of the respondents had gotten COVID-19 related complaints. That's up from 21% in July and just 12% in March 2020. Adding that the Americans with Disabilities claims climbed from 4% in July to 8%. And while the overwhelming majority of the company leaders, that's 87%, are in favor of taking the COVID-19 vaccine themselves, only 15% said they would require workers to get the jab. Meanwhile, 39% of the respondents said they would not require employees to be vaccinated and the rest of the respondents were undecided. When it comes to asking workers if they have been vaccinated, 41% answered that they planned to do so, and uh, half of them remained unsure on this issue. When it comes to the potentially risky practice of incentivizing the shots, just 10% of the respondents said they would, while 34% said they would not, and the rest had yet to decide. While the report showed a steady rise in complaints from employees, it also showed that nearly three-quarters of them do not fall into traditional categories for employment claims, such as discrimination, retaliation, and occupational safety and health administration complaints. Employers have widely adopted medical screening requirements for on-site workers, which could be a driver of the increasing employee complaints. The majority of the surveyed employers have increased cleaning, social distancing, requirements, and associated signage. Roughly 97% of them required masks, a figure that has risen since the summer. Three-quarters of employers allow their employees to work from home, and only 28% have three-quarters or more of the employees on site. Most continue to refrain from instituting workplace liability waivers. 78% of employers have faced increased requests for paid time off, and around 40% have seen increased requests for time off under the Family and Medical Leave Act or unpaid leave. In April, more than half of employers had avoided taking employee-related cost-cutting measures, such as layoffs and furloughs. That number has dropped as the pandemic has raged on. Now just 31% have managed to evade those outcomes. Partners at the law firm said that this was the first survey where employers are feeling somewhat hopeful. And on that note, that's all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news, updates, past editions of our news, and much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device 
by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, our podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarron, Manuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news. 